Hey, everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with just the zoo of us. This is your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, this is an awesome, really exciting friend here to talk about an awesome and really exciting animal. This is Charles Wallace. Say hi, Charles. Hey. I'm so excited to talk to you and virtually meet you. First, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I'm a current PhD student in biology at Arizona State. My background is in entomology and insect systematics. I wrote my MS thesis on a family of flies called Eulidiidae, otherwise known as the picture-winged flies, because they have, not all of them, but most of them have these distinct uh, patterns of pigmentation on their wings, and they use their wings in defense displays and mating displays probably other kinds of displays that we haven't explored yet. They're very pretty little flies. I really encourage everybody to look them up. And so now I am a PhD student in Arizona, and my focus, basically, I am interested in the questions of how and why we do taxonomy, i.e., you know, the classification of organisms the way we do. And I am particularly interested in those questions as they pertain to a group called Dictyoptera, which includes mantises, cockroaches, and termites. Cockroaches. Okay, this is what we're talking about today. So we're bringing it in. I'm excited to learn about cockroaches because I admittedly know very little about them. I'm a blank slate. I'm, <laughs> I'm a clean canvas for you to uh, paint a beautiful picture of cockroaches on. Can you tell me a little bit about what got you into working with cockroaches? Always. So my Dictyoptera love story is, I think, a pretty classic one. String music playing in the background. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was initially interested in mantises because they're a pretty accessible entry point. They're large. They're charismatic. They have very cat-like movements. Mm-hmm. Um, behaviorally, they're really interesting. Visually, they're really interesting. I loved mantises. And I, as I was getting into mantises, I learned that evolutionarily speaking, their closest relatives are the cockroaches and the termites. And as a big nerd for systematics, I thought that that was really interesting. It's kind of an unexpected relationship to a lot of people. Um, usually when you think about mantises, you don't necessarily think about cockroaches and termites. Although if you look at relatively old, earlier evolving mantises, if you look at them, they actually kind of just look like very fancy cockroaches. And so I got really into mantises, and then I got really into termites, because termites are really unique. They're eusocial insects, so like ants and a lot of bees and a lot of wasps, they live in these colonial structures where only certain individuals will actually reproduce, and then other individuals will have different jobs. And I thought termites were really, really interesting. And then through sort of the back door of termites, I got really interested in cockroaches. And once I opened my heart to them, I learned (laughs) that there was a lot of really fascinating stuff to explore in cockroaches themselves. That's funny. If you had asked me prior to right now, I probably would have guessed that termites would have been closer related to ants than cockroaches. It's interesting because, you know, obviously that's not uncommon because termites are often known as white ants, but they actually are on very different positions of the insect tree of life. So if you look at kind of the evolutionary relationships of all insects together, termites and ants are very far apart from each other because Ants belong to a group called holometabola, which just refers to the fact that they undergo what people know as complete metamorphosis. So groups in holometabola, like ants, like beetles, like butterflies, go through the really recognizable stages of egg, larva, pupa, adult. But termites belong to a group which is hemimetabolous, um, which means that they go through quote-unquote incomplete metamorphosis, where when they hatch out of eggs, they kind of look like smaller, immature versions of their adult selves. And as they molt towards adulthood, they get larger, they get more defined features, and then their final molt to adulthood gives them wings, if they're a species that has wings, and genitals. <laughs> Does this apply to cockroaches too? Yes. Okay. So is this like a baby cockroach is just like a scaled down cockroach? Basically, yeah. And a really interesting thing that is different between holometabola and hemimetabolous insects and other kinds of insects is how they develop wings. So in hemimetabolous insects like cockroaches and termites and mantises, 
they develop, as they molt towards adulthood, they develop wing buds. So you can see underneath their exoskeleton where the wings will be, but they only get the full development of wings once they get to adulthood. There's only one order of insect that has functional wings before their final molt to adulthood, and it's mayflies, uh, ephemeroptera. Um, and they have one state below adulthood where they have wings. But everybody else, if they have wings, they're an adult. This brings me to another question about cockroaches when we're talking about like members of this family having wings. Something we have in Florida is palmetto bugs. Is this related? Is this anything? <laughs> yeah. So, so palmetto bugs are confusingly named for me, an entomologist, mm -hmm. because I did my bachelor's degree in biology, but I had a double major in linguistics. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the main thing that this has left me with is a very strong anti-prescriptivist attitude, um, <laughs> which is just a very fancy way of saying prescriptivism is sort of telling people how to speak and descriptivism is describing how people speak just naturally. And so the result of the many hours I spent on my linguistics degree is mostly just the notion that, you know, all words at some point are fake. Mm -hmm. so, so do whatever you want. <laughs> um, but so in an entomological context, we usually use bug to refer to members of the order Hemiptera, which includes cicadas, leafhoppers, assassin bugs, all of those guys. But bug colloquially obviously has very broad terms. So when I first heard palmetto bug, I didn't know what to expect about that because I'm not from Florida. But that is it is a large cockroach basically. And they'll scare you too. They got big old wings and they'll fly right at your face. They yeah. don't care. <laughs> I mean, the thing about uh, the thing about Dictyoptera is that they can fly, but they're generally not actually very good at flying. They tend to use flight for pretty small distances. Yeah, like the distance between the one on my wall to my face. <laughs> Listen, they were in Florida first. Yeah, they were. But, so I was thinking of this time when I had one um, on my wall and I was too terrified to uh, escort it outside and I had to go get a next door neighbor <laughs> from the apartment <laughs> that I lived in there. I had to go find somebody and be like, can you please help me? <laughs> There's a large bug. <laughs> please come help. Um, I, I was like, I don't want to kill it, but I also don't want to be so close to it. And then it did uh, leap at my face, which was very exciting. <laughs> I mean, the good news is that other than just kind of being unwanted, palmetto bugs don't really have the means. Most cockroaches truly are not harmful insects. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's not a logic-driven thing. It's, you know, it's not the thing where, like, your brain is like, okay, is this a threat to me? Yes or no? I will adjust my emotional response accordingly. It's yeah. just, like, sea bug have fear. And to be fair, even I a great lover of cockroaches, I don't want them to jump at my face. It's not a desirable outcome. It's not the relationship I want us to have. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, we can talk about cockroaches in a little more detail today. And for me, I find that to be comforting. Like, if I know more about them, I understand them better than when I do encounter them. Hopefully, that can help calm that immediate panic response, you know, so hopefully that will be the result for people that are listening today and about to learn a whole bunch about cockroaches. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> so if this is your first time listening to this podcast, what we do is we review animals by giving them ratings out of 10 in different categories. And our first category is effectiveness, which for us describes physical adaptations to so things built into the animal's body that let it do a good job of the things it's trying to do. What do you give cockroaches for effectiveness? I'm going to level with you right out the jump. <laughs> <laughs> just right at the gate i'm gonna give them a 10 in every category you're allowed to do that for two reasons one is i love them and i value them and i cherish them in my heart <laughs> and then the second is that there's so much built up cockroach negativity mm -hmm. that they need somebody in their corner they need a win to just ride or die they do they need a spokesperson they need a pr rep that's gonna come in and put one in the dub for them Exactly. And if somebody wants to hire me um, in three years when I finish my PhD, just to be a full-time PR rep for cockroaches, I will do it. <laughs> so I feel like something that we often hear about as far as how physically adapted cockroaches are, you hear about sort of their hardiness, like 
their constitution score effectively yeah. like their their con modifier where they're like indestructible like what is the basis of that so i think a lot of it is just cultural weirdness because this is the the i tricked you moment of <laughs> <laughs> cockroach is a very broad signifier um because in the you know the linnaean taxonomic hierarchy which i'm not going to describe in detail because people don't need to know <laughs> but they are an order which is insects are a class and order is the next one out under that so they are the second broadest basically category within insects and there are about 4600 described species of cockroaches and probably many more that we haven't like scientifically described and so the the reality is that you can make any kind of broad statement like cockroaches are very hardy and there probably is at least one cockroach where that is the case um and so there are a couple of species that are particularly popular in the cockroach breeding hobby which are like the rhinoceros roaches which are exactly what you would expect <laughs> they are large they are very hardy they are just kind of tanks. They're the tanks of the cockroaches. But I think in general, people have this weird idea because kind of the ur cockroach in people's minds are species like Platella germanica, the German cockroach, or Paraplanata americana, which is the American cockroach. Neither of them are from the places in their names. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But of sort of long, smallish to large, flat, brown darting around um mm -hmm. and in that case i think a lot of the sort of stereotype of indestructibility probably comes from the fact that they're fast and they're also flat if you stomp on a roach hard enough you will kill that roach but i think they're very elusive to people and it lets these kinds of misconceptions about them really persist so you don't have to like fully chop the head off or whatever no I feel like I've heard that. <laughs> you have definitely heard it. I've heard it. We've all heard it. It's not true. Insect bodies, they have a relatively decentralized nervous system. So their brain, such as it is, is not as important to them as ours is to our bodies. But if you take a cockroach's head off, they're going to they're gonna die. <laughs> if you stomp on a cockroach hard enough, it's gonna die. There are all kinds, there are actually a lot of ways to kill cockroaches, which I don't want to encourage you to do. But if you need to, it's actually not that hard. I think <laughs> there is a confusion also between killing an individual roach versus getting rid of a bunch of roaches. Sure. Where if there are a lot in one area, then, you know. That's going to be a little bit more of a whole deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I would say in terms of physical adaptability, they are not fighters. They are more rogues. Okay. <laughs> Hiding in the shadows. Yeah. Sort of their fighting strategy is to not fight. It is to flee. Uh, they are elusive more than they are confrontational. And in terms of eluding people, they are extremely effective. Um, and I actually looked this up yesterday because I wanted to have a response if you asked me why cockroaches are so good at running. Why are cockroaches so good at running? Well, I'd love to tell you, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Part of it is that they have a lot of specific adaptations for being able to just book it. So one of them that they share with other kinds of insects, but so insect antennae are a site of a lot of really interesting adaptations. So antennae are important because they are sensory organs. So they're used to take in sensory information about the environment, and then direct a response to it. And a lot of cockroaches, sort of one of the classic elements of the cockroach image is having very, very long antennae, which basically just means that they have sort of a wide area around their body that they can sense, you know, movement and vibration in. And then they also have cerci, you know, on the end of their abdomen, which is just a fancy way of saying if they have these sort of pointy bits that also take in sensory information and can respond to like sensory cues. Also, there are researchers who did a study a couple of years ago that actually found that if they get up to really high speeds, a lot of cockroaches will not use all six legs. They will sort of tilt up and run bipedally. <gasps> no. Yeah. Like in a cartoon. Exactly. Yes. 
Oh uh, my and this, god! Yeah, and so they don't have to coordinate between all six legs. They just use two of them, and they book it. Oh my god! Um, and then also, there was research that found that they actually have an ability. Some cockroaches using their hind legs. So, like, let's say that they're on a shelf or some kind of a ledge. They can get to the end of it, hook their legs under, and then just rotate 180 degrees and keep on going. I'm imagining Sonic the Hedgehog when he's running and his little feet turn into the like bean-shaped blur. You're not wrong. They gotta go fast. They gotta go fast. It is the classic (laughs) Sonic defense. And it's also like another part of the classic cockroach image is that they have typically very spiny legs. And part of that is, you know, cockroaches are, are lovers. They're not fighters. Mm-hmm. But they do have, basically, if you find something that is spiky in nature, that is so that things can't get too close to them, right? Mm-hmm. So they have all of these different physical adaptations that are very classic. And then as stated, because there are so many different cockroaches in the world, and this was part of my dastardly plan to talk about the massive diversity. This is why I didn't come to you with a specific species, because I <laughs> wanted to hammer this home, that there is such immense global diversity in cockroaches that any kind of a life, well, not any kind of, I don't know of any endoparasitic, for example, cockroaches, sure. um, which just means parasites that live inside of something. Like inside something's body. Yes. Or mm-hmm. ectoparasitic. I don't know of any parasitic cockroaches at Don't all. give them any ideas. <laughs> Well, if you're a cockroach and you're listening, <laughs> delete, 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 delete. <laughs> Fair. Also, speaking of kind of a, a different kind of physical adaptation of more of an internal digestive one, cockroaches do tend to be omnivorous. So they tend to be very wide generalists on the kind of foods that they can eat, which is part of why so many of them have been able to establish themselves in a variety of environments. Because if you have a really narrow, like if you feed on one specific plant, you can only live where that plant is. But if you can eat any old thing, Mm-hmm. You can go a lot of places, which is not unlike the evolutionary strategy that has led to humans being every dang place. Yeah. I mean, I feel like cockroaches are something that, like, if there's a human presence there, I feel like that usually also means a cockroach presence there. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, actually, because a lot of the cockroach species that people are most familiar with because here's the thing a lot of cockroaches are pretty elusive they like to live in detritus they like to live in sort of dark places you find a lot of cockroaches for instance in like forest detritus and so the cockroaches that most people are most familiar with tend to be those which have made a home in human habitations because those are the only ones that are going to like come out of the dark in a place where humans are likely to see them the reality of this is a lot of those species are introduced species. So like Paraplanata americana, which is the American cockroach, quote unquote, it's not from anywhere in the Americas, it's from Africa. A common story is that these introduced species are from pretty tropical areas. So they like moist environments, they like humidity, they like relatively high temperatures. And so they get introduced to these ranges that they're not from. And the only locations that are actually really good environments for them are human homes, because they like sort of the same temperature range that we live in. And we have a lot of little moist, dark environments in our homes, like under the kitchen sink. And there's food crumbs everywhere, right? And there's food crumbs. And they can eat the stuff that we just drop all over the place. I know. And we've just got, we got trash all over the place. And where it's like, it's like a little self-contained paradise. It's a great time. Yeah. <laughs> it's for the cockroach. It's like, if you can hide long enough, you got it made. You got it made in the shade. Literally in the shade. Literally in the shade because you are photophobic and you don't like the light. <laughs> is them not liking the light is that just because they're trying to hide and they're trying to stay like obscure or is it some sort of like does the light harm them in some way it's not that they are harmed by the light so much as just they have adapted to low light environments 
And I actually, I looked up a study that specifically looked like at the structure of the eyes of Paraplaneta Americana. And I don't want to say anything like too firm because I don't want to get something wrong and then have like a cartridge scientist write into me <laughs> wagging their fingers through the digital space. Um, but yeah, I, my understanding it is that it's, they are just adapted to low light environments. So there's no reason for them to be out in very sunny places. Makes sense. Since we were talking about like the diversity of all the different types of cockroaches that are out there and talking about how they're sort of generalists, kind of a jack of all trades sort of thing. Are there any types of cockroaches that you can think of that are a little bit more on the extremophile like end of things? Are there any cockroaches that have like just wild places that they can live? I think really strong specificity in cockroaches is not so much in environment as in diet. Mm. Uh, which is actually a great segue to the bomb that I've been holding for the past several months that we've planned this. You've been sitting on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there is a genus of cockroaches, which are known, I guess they're known as the, this is again, we had a conversation about common names and how I think a lot of them are completely made up. Uh, <laughs> the hooded cockroaches. They're in the genus Cryptocercus, uh, and they are wood-eating cockroaches. So they actually have endosymbiotic protozoa, which allow them to digest wood. And here's where the bomb <laughs> drops. This is a trait that they share with termites. And the reason they share this is because of shared ancestry, because termites are, in fact, highly specific cockroaches. Oh, termites are just cockroaches. Yes. <laughs> Not ants, as one would believe. No. They're just cockroach. They're just like, it's just like the softer word <laughs> for a cockroach. I mean, literally softer because termites tend to be very soft bodied. You can't pin them because they'll just fall apart. You have to put them in ethanol. Just a little insight into <laughs> insect curation because I know everybody is dying to know about it. Um, <laughs> but no, so. For a long time, the sort of evolutionary relationships between these three major groups and Dictyoptera was believed to be kind of rotoid ancestor over 300 million years ago. Then the first, you know, path to diverge out was mantises, leading to, you know, modern mantises. And then cockroaches and termites were believed to be sister groups, which is just a term that systematists use to refer to, like, the two most closely related groups from a given ancestor. So in the same way that my sister is the most closely related to me of anybody from my mom as an ancestor, mm -hmm. and then my cousin is like, we have to go up another node in the family tree. Mm -hmm. Similarly, termites and cockroaches were seen to be like sisters, and then mantises would have been their, like, cousin. Okay, I'm following. But starting in the early 2000s, there were a series of studies using genetic sequences, which overturned that long-standing belief and eventually concluded termites are not separate from cockroaches. Termites just are cockroaches. They're just within the subset of They're cockroach. just within cockroaches. And the sister group to termites is Cryptocercus. The wood-eating cockroaches. And so it's not a coincidence that they have, like, the same strategies for eating wood. It is a result of shared evolutionary history. That was the smoking gun all along. And what's interesting is that not a lot of people know this, but this is actually a really old hypothesis. Like, there are publications going back to the early 20th century that are like, hey, do we think maybe termites might be just derived cockroaches? And other people were like, eh, no. I was reading a paper last night and I got too jazzed up about it and then I couldn't go to sleep of just like these now believed to be false understandings of like where to place because it was saying like Cryptocercus is a very basal group of cockroaches is a very ancient group of cockroaches. It's not, but it had to be placed there so that its similarity with termites would make more sense. So I, I kind of a final point on the physical adaptations of cockroaches, a really important shared trait. In Dictyoptera, like part of how we know that mantises are closely related to cockroaches is that they have a trait. They produce something called uatheke, which is spelled O-O-T-H-E-C-A. And then the plural has an E at the end because biologists, right? <laughs> and these are egg cases. 
And so instead of just like laying a mass of eggs, they actually lay eggs inside of a, a little container. And so with mantises, a lot of you have probably seen these and not realized, you know, this is what you were seeing, but they, they lay these kind of foamy balls on sticks and stuff. And then, you know, in the spring when it warms up, little mantises hatch out of those. And what cockroaches lay look basically like leathery little clutch purses. Mm. Fallout players are familiar with this. Um, sure. A- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's like giant mutant mantises in the Fallout games, and you can like harvest their Uthica around yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> and so they look like little clutch purses. They're kind of leathery. They open up like a purse, and all the little hatchling uh, cockroaches come out. And there are different strategies that cockroaches have. So there are some that lay the egg case and then abandon it. There are some that hold it sticking out of the back of their abdomen. So you may have seen this because this happens in a couple of quote unquote pest species where they just like partially retain it attached to their body, but outside of their abdomen. And then there are others where they will lay the egg case, rotate it, bring it back inside their body. And then the hatchlings actually emerge out of the abdomen when they're mature. Okay. Yeah. This happens in the most popular species in like the pet trade, Gromphodorina portentosa, or the Madagascar hissing cockroach. Mm, okay. We know of this. <laughs> yeah. They have a strategy called ovoviviparity. It's come up when we've talked about sharks. Yeah. Yes. Um, you're still laying eggs, kind of, but they're inside of the body. But this is part of what makes cockroaches and mantises successful is that a lot of these species, they can just lay a leathery little egg case. You know, it's pretty hardy. And then they hatch out of it. And there you go. Because one of the most important things in like dispersal and kind of seeding yourself in different areas is being able to reproduce there. And it is much, much easier to just kind of lay an egg case and forget about it peace later <laughs> hope exactly. this works out for y'all <laughs> yeah and, and again they're because there's such broad diversity in cockroaches there are groups that actually have direct maternal care after the little cockroaches hatch but most of them it's a it's a pretty hands-off affair sure 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 this is a good transition i think into the next category that we rate animals on which is ingenuity so these are behavioral adaptations clever little strategies that they may have or ways that they might solve problems that they encounter so you did uh say up top already what you were going to give them but just for a clean take what do you give them for ingenuity 15 out of 10 (laughs) are these clever dudes yes i mean i i think clever is a great word for it because they're, you know, they're sly, right? Like, they, they get out of situations. I think even just maternal care is, like, really interesting. It's not something people talk about when they think about, you know, any sort of buggy thing. You know, we don't think about bug mamas taking care of their little babies. That's true. <laughs> Parenthood does tend to be a pretty hands-off affair in the insect world. But there are a couple of groups that have really specific maternal care. Yeah, so there is one species, Thorax porcelana, uh, which carries its nymphs like under its forewings for the first few stages of their lives. It's just a cute little clutch. You yeah, just basically a little well, accessory. They, they lift up their wings a little bit and the sort of nymphs like crowd underneath. It's pretty cute, actually. <laughs> um, so in that group, Thorax porcelana, and then in another group where the genus is, I think, Paris Ferris? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about scientific names. There's no right way to say them because they're <laughs> fake words. Just go for it. Just, Just say it with confidence. It. I want to give everybody listening all the confidence I am saying to you as a linguistics graduate <laughs> and as a biologist with a focus in taxonomy. Do whatever you want. They're fake words. The important thing is that you are communicating an idea to other people in a way that they can understand it. I deeply appreciate this validation. Yeah. If you've gotten there, you've done it. Yeah. So in Perisferis, which is a genus from Southeast Asia and Australasia, they also have direct maternal care. And in both of these groups, they actually like feed their offspring, not in the million way of like making milk specifically. So in one of them, they will pierce the cuticle or like the outside part of the exoskeleton and just suck up hemolymph, which is oh. basically insect blood. And then in Paris Ferris, the 
maternal parent actually, it is believed that they make like a nutrient, quote unquote, milk that they can suck up from special pores. Huh. Which is not what a lot of people expect from cockroaches. No, that seems so like in line with what we're familiar with from mammals. Like Mm -hmm. it seems so similar to that. But they're so foreign. Yeah, they're great. I love them. And in this case, the direct maternal care, uh, in my understanding, is limited to the first few. So the stages between molts in insects are called instars. So we talk about an insect having like six instars to adulthood. Um, And so in this case, these behaviors are really only present for like the first two instars when they're still small, new to the world, pretty soft shelled, you know. And then there are also cockroaches that, when threatened, will roll up like a pill bug or like a roly-poly, depending on your regional name for them. The three that I know are pill bug, which is sort of my go-to, roly-poly, which is what I called them growing up. Because it, it sounds like something that you would tell a child is the name it of does, it. It does, and then I and then nobody ever corrected me on it. Like, I was never given, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, now that you're an adult, now you no longer call them roly-polies. There's this new thing you call them now. Like, nobody ever gave me that, so I just stuck with it. <laughs> Valid. And then also woodlouse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're all, I think in arthropods especially, it's a little bit difficult to talk about physical adaptations and behavioral adaptations as separate, because so much of behavior is physically determined. But another example of interesting behavior is there is a genus of cockroaches called Ataphyla. If you literally break that down into Ata and Phyla, it is basically Ata is a a genus of ants and Phyla is, you know, lover. Mm -hmm. It literally breaks down to ant lover and they are known as myrmecophiles, which is a strategy present in a lot of different insects and different arthropods of living inside of ant nests and ant (gasps) colonies alongside ants. Along with them. Yes. And so there are a couple of ways that these... So they live with Atta and Acromyrmex, which are two genera of leaf-cutting ants, which are exactly what it says on the tin. (laughs) They cut leaves... They take the leaves back to their nests and they sort of farm them and grow fungus and then they eat the fungus. I love these dudes. These are some of the most mind-blowing animals in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you really want to ruin your life with pedantry, if you watch The Lion King, at least the original animated one, I haven't seen the quote-unquote live-action one and I'm not going to. I only have so many hours to live my life. And you've already spent some of them on Lion King. You don't need to spend any more. I don't need to spend them on more. Um, although I will say that there, I've heard that there's a whole sequence in the newer Lion King of a dung beetle just like rolling a ball of dung. There is. It's really cute. And I, you don't need to watch the whole movie for that though. I do love dung beetles, but so in the, the opening sequence of the original Lion King, they actually show some leafcutter ants walking across the screen. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> leafcutter ants are only natively in Central and South America. You would not find them in Africa at all. No. No reason you'd see them with lions in the background. (laughs) No. Uh, Not unless you were at a really poorly designed zoo. (laughs) But I'm I'm interested to know how a a cockroach could infiltrate an ant colony, because they're very visibly different. (laughs) Well, I would love to tell you. (laughs) First thing, small. Both small. Both small, um, because there, there is a wide range of sizes in cockroaches. Like there are not giant cockroaches as like a lot of people say that they've seen cockroaches that are like five inches long. They haven't. Probably not. They're just scared of them and they exaggerated because the human mind loves to do that. Mm-hmm. And our memories are often faulty. Big scare, big thing. Big scare, big thing. But there are some that are like several inches long, um, like Blabberus. This, the genus Blabberus is really, really popular in the pet trade. You see it a lot in like insectariums and stuff too, because they're relatively large and showy, but they're also pretty easy to keep. Um, so they can get up to like three or four inches long, maybe. And they have a pretty wide wingspan, but they, they're very chill. They're just vibing. But Ataphyla are are very small. They're not as small as ants, but they are small enough to live inside of ant tunnels. So that's one thing. And then also they chemically disguise themselves so that they do not 
basically smell like an outsider to the ants who are living there. And it's generally believed, I think, that they also feed off of the fungus that these ants are farming. So they've got a very good deal going for themselves. They just chill inside of an ant colony, eat the fungus that they're growing, live their life. And they don't have wings, like they don't develop wings because they live inside tunnels. What's the point? Mm -hmm. But then you might ask, well, how do they get to new places? And the answer is they hitchhike on dispersing ant queens. Wow. They have really uh, ingrained themselves. They have figured it out. (laughs) So when like you social, which just means, have you talked about you sociality on this podcast Yeah. Uh, surprisingly with naked mole rats we talked yeah. about it well yes because <laughs> normally we think about you sociality with insects but somehow mammals got up on it <laughs> they figured that out when they, they figured that out so when you know you social not naked mole rats because they don't have wings because they're the wrong kind of mammal to have wings but when you social insects disperse basically when they want to go start new colonies most of the time in their adult forms, they don't have wings. Because again, they live in tunnels. Why would they have wings? But when they need to disperse, wings are very useful. Because if you're small, it is much easier to fly a long distance than walk it. And so dispersal is also very important evolutionarily because it lets species get out to new places, less competition, etc., etc. And so what they do is that reproductives or potential reproductives will develop wings and then they'll go out and they'll fly and they'll get to a new place. And this happens in termites actually, where you will often see mating swarms where a bunch of winged individuals will go out and they'll swarm and they'll find mates and then they'll actually physically break off their wings. So after the, that you can often see a lot of like just abandoned wings all over the place because they break them off before they reproduce with each other. Um, and so what Adaphyla do is that they will just climb on top of a dispersing queen and just ride that into the sunset. <laughs> Onward, mighty steed. Basically, yeah. <laughs> In sort of a potentially controversial take, it's interesting because there is one species that is extinct in the wild or is believed to be extinct in the wild, but is kept alive via the roach breeding hobby and people who keep roaches as pets, which is a, a robust community. And it, it's called a uh, Simandoa conserferium or the Simandoa cave roach. So it was found in an area of Guinea uh, where it lived just inside of caves and fed out of, off of guano. And, but the caves where it was found are in these areas that have bauxite ore mines And so they were collected as part of like a faunal survey of people in the area. Like they knew that they were going to be mined and a lot of stuff was going to be taken out. So they they did a faunal survey of the area and they got these roaches. And so they were basically described to the wider scientific community at the same time they're kind of believed to have been exterminated from the wild. And so I think this is an interesting take because they're not domesticated. Like they are not domesticated in the way that like cats are domesticated. And one of their behavioral adaptations is just being real cute <laughs> and affectionate. <laughs> um, but because they are relatively easy to keep in captivity, they are not dead from the world. Yeah. You get along with humans, humans will bolster you and keep you alive. (laughs) Basically. And this is the thing, is that like a lot of cockroaches are seen as pests. And it's actually interesting because there are over 4,600 described species of cockroaches, not counting termites. There are like 2,000 species of termites. But only like a couple dozen of them really have pest status for humans. And only a couple of those are like really, really well established in human habitations. Like the reality is that most Americans have probably seen like three or four species of cockroach ever. And so, you know, most people don't want cockroaches in their house, but people who are in the hobby do, and they do have them there. And the thing about cockroaches is that they're actually overall pretty easy to keep in captivity because they like relatively warm temperatures, usually in the range of temperatures that we also like to live in. And they 
eat a lot of different stuff. So you don't need to have a really specific diet for them. Like people will literally feed cockroach pets kibble that you would have for your dog. <laughs> and this is actually not the best food source for them because it's believed that they can like build up uric acid and it's like not great for them in the long term, but you could do it. And so cockroaches are interesting because their relative non-specificity is a big contributor to their overall success. That makes sense. You know, if you've got a cockroach that you could essentially, you know, throw a couple vegetables in there and just be like, hey, how you doing? You good? Basically, right, good. yeah. <laughs> I, I Well, because when everything shut down last year, I had to take home a couple of like groups of roaches that we had at the insect collection here because, the, you know, we didn't know when or if we would be allowed back in the building. Mm-hmm. And I have kept them not in ideal conditions, but in a relatively small container in a closet in my apartment for the past year and i just feed them the produce scraps that i have from cooking it's compost (laughs) and they have not only survived they have thrived they have done so well that i am going to have to move them to a larger container because there is such an excess of bustling little nymphs in that (gasps) oh that's so good just a lot of little babies oh but the, the final thing that I would like to say on behavioral adaptations is I would like to clear up some misconceptions about c- cockroach behavior. I'm here for it. Yeah. So there's actually a really great book that I recommend to everybody. It's a fantastic book called Tracks and Sign of Insects and Other Invertebrates. I can actually show it to you right now because I have it with me. It's a great book. It's beautifully illustrated. It has a ton of pictures and information. And it's all of like, it's like ways to tell that an insect has been somewhere. So mm-hmm. tracks, uh, egg cases, hives, etc. But on one page, one of the only things that it includes about cockroaches, and I copied this over because it is such an absurd, <laughs> absurd thing. Quote, Roaches will consume hair on sleeping people in heavily infested buildings, resulting in loss of eyelashes and eyebrows over time. What? I looked, and granted, I didn't look that hard. I didn't do an exhaustive search of all cockroach literature because I needed to go to sleep. But (laughs) I looked, and the only substantiating evidence I could find for this was from pest control companies— there it is. Which are notoriously anti-roach. Mm-hmm. And they have a vested interest in people being extremely scared of roaches right. all the time. Because here's the thing. Roaches are among, if not the most hated insect. They have sort of the, the strongest immediate yuck reaction, I think, of any insect. And a lot of it, they just don't deserve it. Because first of all, there are thousands of roach species in the world and only a couple of them live close enough to us to be annoying so that's one thing and then secondarily they are very non-aggressive i can imagine maybe some roach at some time in history has been a little bit weird and decided to climb up on somebody's face and eat their eyelashes off But I would not say that it is a common behavior. It has such old wives' tale energy. It really does. And I don't want to say absolutely that this is not and cannot be the case, because the only true universal statement in biology is that there's an exception to everything. Oh, yeah. But if this is something that you're worried about, please be worried about something more likely to happen. (laughs) (laughs) and listen i have multiple anxiety disorders i get it but truly because another thing is people love to justify really severe roach control by saying that roaches are a significant health risk and in some cases that's true if you have an infestation you probably shouldn't but roaches in the numbers that most of us encounter them in our lives are essentially harmless they do physically develop some allergenic like compounds that can that can bother people particularly if you are asthmatic and you already have an a cockroach sensitivity that can cause problems for you in breathing 
and you can develop a sensitivity to cockroaches over time. Like it is not uncommon to hear about people who have developed cockroach allergies, particularly in the roach breeding hobby, because who else is handling roaches all the time? But they are not meaningfully a vector for diseases that affect humans. And a, a lot of the evidence that suggests that they are just spreading, you know, really harmful disease causing pathogens to people comes from studies whose conclusion is basically like, well, we found them on roaches, so they've got to be spreading them to people. Mm. And I, I think standards for evidence there have, have really not been met in a meaningful way. So I would say, as a final note on behavior, cockroaches, 10 out of 10 humans, <laughs> are coming up a little bit lacking. Our contentious relationship with them is entirely projection on our on our end. <laughs> I mean... An assumption. I don't want to say that cockroaches never cause problems for people, but the way that I was thinking about it, and, and the way that I would put it now, is that like if you end up with a cockroach infestation... That is probably happening because there is another thing in your living conditions that needs to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just going to try to go where they can thrive the most. They're just trying to find a good place for them to live. So, like, you can't blame them for that. <laughs> they're just vibing and trying to live their lives. They're trying their best. You know, since you were talking about the cockroach raising hobby, I, I don't think that I people often think of cockroaches as being pets themselves, perhaps like food for other pets, right? So people with reptiles or something might breed cockroaches to feed to their reptile or something. But you don't often think of, from outside of the roach breeding hobby, you don't think of cockroaches as a pet that people would keep. And that brings me to aesthetics. You sticking with the 10 on aesthetics for the cockroaches. A million out of 10. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I have seen T. Francis, I know, um, posts a lot of pictures of emerald cockroaches. Mm. Is that what they are? Yeah. Now, these are some pretty dudes. They're gorgeous. I mean, because this is another thing that I always try to hammer home for people is that I think that there is beauty even in the most humble, like, human home inhabiting mm -hmm. pest roach. I think if you look closely at any insect, you can find the beauty there. Mm -hmm. But there are also species, lots of species, that just unambiguously to any sense of aesthetics that can expand to include insects, which I know for some people is a hard ask. I can't get into that <laughs> mindset, but I, I believe it happens. They're just gorgeous animals. They're often brightly colored. There are metallic roaches. There are roaches that have very elegant color schemes. They've got it all going on. I would list as an example, if it's very difficult for you to think of cockroaches as having potential for beauty, there's a Pokemon. This is a recent Pokemon. It is number 794 that was introduced in a more recent game. I don't know which generation. Oh, this was a generation seven Pokemon. It's an ultra beast called Pheromosa. It is a bug and fighting type Pokemon. And it is based on a cockroach. It is incredibly ethereally beautiful. It has a very like <gasps> feminine um, sort of design where it looks kind of like an anthropomorphized, like if a cockroach was like someone's very cool fursona, this is what it looks like. Are you looking at a picture of it? A pheromosa? Yes. This is a great Pokemon. And it has, I've never seen a design like this that takes a cockroach and makes it glam, you know? Like I love this so much. I would recommend looking up the Pokemon Pheromosa if it's difficult for you to conceptualize a cockroach as beautiful. Because it takes cockroach features and really leans into the sort of elegance of them. And I think there are like real-life cockroaches that tap into the same kind of sense of beauty, where it is a not uncommon sort of body plan for cockroaches to end up kind of thin and sort of semi-translucent in their wings and kind of just overall elegant. Mm -hmm. Kind of an alien sort of beauty to it. Like, it's very difficult for, I think, humans maybe to relate to it because they have a body plan that's so different from ours. But um, once you kind of 
start to appreciate what they're all about, it starts to come together. You know, I think it starts to click a little bit. But but speaking of sort of ethereal beauty, one of my favorite groups of cockroaches belongs to the genus Gyna, G-Y-N-A, which is also, it's very popular in the hobby because they are beautiful roaches. Yeah, if you just Google image search Gyna roaches. Okay, it comes up as chrome roaches. That's one of them. Okay. Ooh, oh, that's so pretty. Right? And they have a very, they have very sort of like round features to them. It looks very friendly, I think. Yeah, I love these. I actually had a colony of Gyna lurida. Uh, briefly, unfortunately, they all like reached sexual maturity, like staggered with each other. So they weren't actually able to breed with each other. Aww. Yeah, because they don't live very long. They like live a couple of months as adults. But I had them and the first time I like opened up their enclosure and I saw that one of them had molted to adulthood, I was so overcome with emotion. I just like jumped up and down on the spot (laughs) like i screamed in happiness just jumped up and down clapping because it was so transcendently elegantly beautiful Mm -hmm. just in a way that i i think people don't let themselves think of with roaches because Mm -hmm. they have in their mind that it's something dirty and brown that lives in the dark and has weird spiky legs and that is some of them Mm -hmm. but but most roaches literally don't look like that and there are a lot of examples of roaches that are very obviously beautiful and then also roaches that are really visually striking even if they are not necessarily beautiful in that way Mm -hmm. so there is a genus of roaches called lucihormetica they're known as like the glow spot roaches i see it for kind of a controversial reason they there was a paper published in 1999 that listed a species of this Lucihormetica fenestrata as the first example of like luminescence in an orthopteroid insect which basically is just the group of insects that cockroaches belong to and there has been some controversy there was like one paper published like luminescence in this roach and then there was another paper published in like 2013 that was like i don't think we've actually reached the like standard of evidence for this and then in conclusion it seems like they have uv luminescence where if you Uh, like shine uv on them they will sort of glow but it is not bioluminescence in the way of like a firefly sure 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 um But all that to say, they have these very distinct spots the males do on their pronotum. The pronotum is sort of the first segment on the back of the insect, on the thorax. And this is, this is a really important feature in what gives cockroaches their sort of essential cockroachy look, where the pronotum tends to be very wide and sort of covers their head from above. So if you're looking down at a cockroach, Often you won't see their head because it's kind of concealed. So on the pronotum, they often have these pronotal adaptations, uh, particularly in males and adults. So in the Madagascar hissing cockroach, you can tell males and females apart from each other because males will have more pronounced sort of horns on their pronotum. And then also in Gyna, for example, one important feature is the, the pattern that is on the pronotum. It's just a really important feature in cockroaches overall. And so in the warty glow spot roaches, they have these spots that basically fluoresce under UV light. And they are not necessarily beautiful in the way that Gyna, for example, is beautiful, but they are very striking and very unique. It gets your attention. Yes. And they really <laughs> got people's attention because they are very popular in the hobby. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, even just thinking about cockroaches in terms of how nice they might be to look at is already kind of a reframing for a lot of people. Um, so hopefully that's where an appreciation can start. You know, if you can just start there with looking closely at it and being like, okay, I, maybe I get what this animal is kind of about. Um, and then 
hopefully, you know, using that as a stepping stone to like appreciating them, not being so scared of them. I get it. Sometimes there's just, you, you can't always control that sort of fear or panic response that you have when you see certain animals in person. I have it with fish. Like if I'm around fish, which is horrible for somebody that lives in Florida, but if I'm like around <laughs> fish, I have like an uncontrollable sort of fear response. And so like, I get it, you know, like you can't always control that, but what you can sort of control is just like the way that you might respond to them. Or, you know, if you see one, just shuffle it on along, you know, maybe just put it back outside or. And another potential entry point for people in sort of roaches in more general terms is that there are a number of examples of mimicry in roaches where they look like other insects. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this is most common as beetle mimicry because they're kind of that shape already. I can totally see it. Yeah. And so there are roaches that are really clear ladybug mimics. That sounds adorable. (laughs) If you were to look at them and not know that it was a roach and you were not an entomologist, you would probably just think that it was a ladybug. I see it. That's really cute. Right? They're adorable. It's got the polka dots and everything. They look so cute. Because, okay, so my mom is a a big roach hater. She hates roaches, which causes me pain every day. (laughs) Um, Literally, when I got into entomology, my mom said to me, she was just like, just make me one promise that you won't become a cockroach biologist. Mission failed. (laughs) Sorry, mom. I love you, but I got to follow my heart. Um, But I have shown my mom pictures of roaches before that didn't look like the roaches that she was familiar with and she was like oh that's that's a pretty bug and then i was be like well it's a it's a roach and then she would immediately turn on her heel and not like it anymore and not to dunk on my mom so close to mother's day <laughs> but come on um my she raised me to be open-minded and this is how you respond <laughs> anyway so there are ladybug mimics and there's also um firefly mimic roaches that's adorable yes and um there's also a roach species that is a really clear mimic of a species of assassin bug um i don't know if you know about assassin bugs it's like a wheel bug basically a wheel bug is it's a it's a square rectangle situation where a wheel bug is a kind of assassin bug Mm -hmm. and so a very common feature of them is that their abdomen will kind of scoop out around their wings if you've seen a wheel bug then Mm -hmm. you've seen this and the cockroach actually has a comparable feet where the abdomen sort of bulges out around their wings to give it that same essential body shape sneaky sneaky yeah (laughs) and they're beautiful and they're not gonna bite you unlike an actual assassin bug so beauty and not getting bitten (laughs) you can form and function (laughs) they've got it all I hope that this can at least be a stepping stone. You know, I hope that we're not preaching to the choir too much. How like people listening would already maybe be a little bit in the pro cockroach camp. But, you know, hopefully this can be at least a stepping stone for somebody out there who I know that a lot of people have said that they've listened to our previous episodes on like spiders, right? Or snakes or something and that it helped sort of assuage the anxiety around spiders or snakes or whatever. So I hope that we can be that for if one person out there is listening and is like cockroaches might actually be okay, then like mission accomplished. I think I would just end, you know, not to get too sort of overtly PSA about it. (laughs) But the the reality is that this knee jerk negative reaction to cockroaches does have real consequences and not just for cockroaches because Pest control agencies really, really make their money off of exaggerated fears of animals that ultimately are not going to harm you. And the problem is that we're seeing, like, we're seeing declining insect numbers all over, which is not, like, I'm not going to put that firmly at the feet of people laying out too many insect traps in their home. But taking an overall mega aggressive attitude towards quote unquote pest control 
does meaningfully have negative consequences, not just for the insects that you're trying to get rid of, but all the other ones that even if you don't want to see them, you want to keep existing in the world. Otherwise, I really cannot stress enough how important insects are to literally every part of the world ecologically, Mm -hmm. except for maybe Antarctica. Right. Yeah, but you need that groundwork for a healthy ecosystem. So it's kind of comparable to how people respond to mosquitoes, Mm -hmm. where you see these, um, you know, I've lived in the southeast. I've seen these advertisements for these services that purport to make your yard mosquito free. They don't. There is nothing that you can do to your yard short of making it absolutely inhospitable to all organic life, which probably includes you, (laughs) that will make sure that no mosquitoes can occur there. And the reality is you can't remove the things that you don't like from the world without really disturbing a lot of different stuff. Yeah, everything has its place. I hope that at least we can drive that point home today. (laughs) I hope so. And as we kind of wrap up for today, I did want to give you space to let people know what you're working on. Definitely, like, I want to hear more about Assigned Scientist at Bachelors, your podcast, whatever the work you're working on, where people can find you, things like that. Absolutely. So I actually, the first paper out of my MS thesis just got published. It is an illustrated guide to the Eula deity of the United States and Canada. So a really hot, trendy topic, but it represents many hundreds of hours of work. And I think it's pretty good. Um, and it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's an illustrated guide to Eula deity of the United, of Canada and the United States. So members of the family that I, my, I did my master's work on, which are pretty nice little flies. Um, if you can find room in your heart to find flies attractive, you'll love these guys. <laughs> you'll go wild for them. Um, and then also, I, I mean, I, now these days I'm primarily working on preparing to defend my prospectus, which we'll talk a lot about cockroaches. So in a, in a way, this is preparing me for that. And then as, as mentioned, I also have a podcast. It's called Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. It's a play on the phrase assigned sex at birth. And it's me and my co-host Tessa. And we're both trans scientists. And most of our episodes, we bring on other trans and non-binary people in or connected to science in some way. And we have them talk about their research, their interest in science. Um, we also talk about Star Trek a lot uh, because I don't think that should surprise anybody um, that two trans nerds love Star Trek. It's just a beacon. <laughs> it's basically. And I, I, you know, I think we're pretty good. <laughs> it's delightful. And I would say as potentially an entry point for anybody who's hearing me here for Valentine's Day, maybe not for kids in the audience, But adults, for Valentine's Day, we released an episode talking about a really unique genus of a kind of insect called bark lice in the genus Neotrogla, which have a really unique reproductive adaptation. And we talked about that and sort of the context around that. That's episode 20. And then the next episode that we're going to release as Ellen and I are recording this is talking about Eulidiidae, which is the family, again, that I did my master's on. Um, and that's going to be episode 28. Um, so those are kind of our most recent insect talks and we also talk about space a lot we talk about science fiction uh we talk about star trek as noted uh (laughs) it's it's a nice i think we have fun conversations that are hopefully approachable about different scientific topics and we also love wild science fictional speculation it's a fun time i mean i will say that i just within the first couple of months after my youngest son was born binged the next generation so I and I before that I had been like sort of a Star Trek observer like mm-hmm. I had I had like caught you know caught the occasional stray episode here and there and then it it, it was on Netflix and I had so much time on my hands because I had a <laughs> newborn baby so it was the sort of thing where like I would wake up in the morning turn on Star Trek and it would just run throughout the day <laughs> like, yeah. we do so far we have one episode on the next generation it's episode three we talked about the chase mm-hmm. uh, which is in season six it's a completely absurd con- uh a premise for an episode because it's like all humanoid species were seeded by these like ur humanoid species which is 
I, I'm sorry to burst any bubbles. That's not how it happened. <laughs> um, but we used it as like a jumping off point to talk about a, a relatively esoteric to most people concept in philosophy of biology called evolutionary contingency. And we had a great time. Uh, you really got to get into Deep Space. Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek. I think that it is unambiguously the best Star Trek. <laughs> it's a great time. I haven't made time for it yet. I, I think I like started it. But it seemed like the sort of thing that you really needed to be focused on. And I was not in a space where I was able to focus on it in that moment. So I need to like come back to it when I'm able to really, really appreciate it for what it is. (laughs) My two sort of life quests are to change people's minds about cockroaches and really advocate for Deep Space Nine. (laughs) (laughs) Those are two very noble quests. (laughs) But I, I see some common threads there. You know, like both of them have these sort of connotations of being like edgier, a little bit less like um fluffy and cutesy you know but but i love value (laughs) i'm so tickled by the idea of me being edgy in any in any way because i'm a real classic teacher's pet (laughs) i just i just think there's some i guess that they're both like deserving of more love than they get you know Uh, yeah i would put it that way yeah yeah. They're unfairly maligned when they're both so great. There you go. You you summed it up a lot more succinctly than I was able to in that moment. Um, but yeah, so everybody listening should go check out Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining me today and sharing all of your energy and wisdom and knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. I definitely feel like next time I see a cockroach, I'm at least going to like, I'm going to make an effort to think about that's a cool little dude running around right there. Like, we're buds. Hey, that's all I ask. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that anybody listening could at least have a basis of, like, a better relationship with cockroaches now. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.